And so we begin with the first commandment. Years ago, I heard a statement about a sentence. And someone said of the sentence, this sentence is pregnant with meaning. My dear friends, this first commandment is pregnant with meaning. Let's look at it, if you would. Verse 3, Exodus chapter 20. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. Period. You shall have no other gods before me. So the very first thing that we want to work on is the first word, you, and it tells us about, number one, a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. You want to write that down. Because I, it is time for me to teach you in the context of where this is found about the covenant relationship you and I have in Christ Jesus. Now, I will tell you that some of you are going to find that what you hear in the next few moments are going to actually unlock the entirety of Scripture for you. It will be that piece that you have been missing in that jigsaw puzzle. You'll say, really? With the word you? You betcha. With this word you. Because it tells us who is addressed to and the extent of the address It tells us from whence it comes and the basis for it. It is summarized as a covenant relationship. So let me teach you about this truth. Part of the difficulty all of us deal with when we read the Scripture is we deal with the difficulty of being separated by time and space and culture. What took place in 33 A.D. is very different than what takes place in 2022. We are separated by 2,200 years. 2,100 years. How many ever years were separated? 2,000 years. We're separated. A lot. We're separated by two millennia. And you might ask yourself, with this gap, why was so much ink spent in the Bible on the concept of circumcision? Why uh, was eating meat, particularly pork chops, a moral dilemma for those people in that time? Much less, why were the Samaritans despised? We're separated by a great distance, by a great distance of time and space and culture. But however, there is a solution to that gap, that gap that is a conceptual gap. And that is the concept of covenant. The concept of covenant. And I'm going to argue in the next few moments that it is one of the most important concepts to understand if you want to understand the Bible rightly. If you want to understand it rightly. So as we talk about this covenant relationship, let me show you the concept of covenant as it appears in the Scripture. The concept of covenant as it appears in the Scripture. Let me help you understand it this way. A covenant is an, in the ancient world was similar to what we have in the modern world 
that we call a contract or a treaty or a will. Each covenant established the basis of a relationship. It was a contract or a treaty or a will that established the basis of a relationship. It established the conditions of the relationship. It made promises in that relationship if those conditions were met and listed the consequences in that relationship of of covenant if it was not met. You say, well, give me a modern day example. I can. I'll give you the first covenant. Marriage. The very first institution of God was the creation of the family. Marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cling to his wife and shall become one flesh. This was before the establishment of the church. And so you have this concept of covenant. And so when I, why, do, why is it that we need to understand this is so important when we look at this word you right here? Because it's who the you addresses. It's because covenant, write this down, covenant provides the skeleton. It provides the skeletal framework for how all of biblical history holds together. It's through the concept of covenant that you can understand then why Jesus Christ allowed Himself to be baptized by John the Baptist. It is through the concept of the covenant that you can understand why Jesus in the upper room established the new covenant. You say, well, I have opinions about all that, but are they based upon the covenant framework of Scripture? I have no doubt many of you have many opinions. The question is, who's right? And so the story of, and you need to understand something, when Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth does not tell about salvation yet. It doesn't speak to what we find out at the end of the revelation, which is amen. All that has taken place, so from Genesis 1 to Revelation, the end of Revelation, you have the unfolding of biblical history. And it unfolds in a way that is either pointing forward or looking backwards, as I'll show you in just a moment. So as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see God is a covenant-making God. He is a covenant-keeping God, and He is a covenant-fulfilling God. And God established the covenants with certain people, and these covenants are a way that He unfolds His redemptive plan. For example... For example, the first covenant that you can see of the five major covenants of Scripture is what is known as the Noahic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant is found specifically in Genesis chapter 9. You don't have to read it into the text. God has set a covenant. He has said this is the foundation, these are the terms, this is the condition that the terms are met, and this is the consequence if they are not. The proof of it, by the way, is the rainbow. 
And it's interesting that the very ones that march under that rainbow as their symbol are the very ones for which that rainbow was created to say judgment is coming. And so consequently you have the Noahic covenant. And what does it do? In the Noahic covenant, if you go home and read Genesis 9, you'll see that Noah after the flood in which God resets and renews the blessing of creation, he reaffirms God's image in humanity and he works and, and the works of man's dominion over the earth. This covenant promise is of the preservation of humanity. Listen to me. You need to understand this, brother Christian and sister Christian. The covenant, the Noahic covenant, is a promise of the preservation of humanity and provides for the restraint of human evil in violence. It is because of the Noahic covenant that Adolf Hitler was not able to do all that he wanted to do. It is because of the Noahic covenant that Idi Amin could not do all that he wanted to do in Africa. It is because of the Noahic covenant that uh, all of the great wicked people on earth have not been able to do what they've done. And it is because of the Noahic covenant that Satan cannot prevail over the kingdom of God. That is the first covenant of redemption. But then there's a second. There is the Abrahamic covenant that is mentioned in Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15. This is the most central covenant to the entire biblical story from Genesis to maps. In it, God promises Abraham a land, descendants, and a blessing. He promises Abraham a land, descendants, and a blessing. And this would extend through Him to all the peoples of the earth. Now listen, Christian. Understanding the Abrahamic covenant is paramount to understanding the theological concept like the promised land, the doctrine of election, the people of God, and the inheritance of all that God has. It provides the context for understanding practices like circumcision and conflicts without with surrounding nations and divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles, it is found in the Abrahamic covenant. It's like a primer where you have the primer gives you the codes, the interpretation of the codes, and then you can look at what has been written and you have the code book or the primer. You have the code book. It then speaks to you clearly. And then you have where we are, what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant has a couple of parts to it. It is found in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 7, and Exodus 24. This is the covenant God established with His people. With, listen, His covenant people. He established this covenant not with the world. He established this covenant with the people at the foot of Mount Sinai known as the Israel of God. This was not a covenant He made with Egyptians, Phoenicians, Romans, Grecians, Irish people. 
He made this with His covenant people. And they are represented in this text with the word in the second person singular, you. Not you all, not all y'all, not y'all, you individually. Each one of you at the foot of Mount Sinai shall have no other gods before me. Individual, not collective. It is not collective. It's individual. And He did not make this with anyone else. He made it individually in covenant with those people at the mountain. And I want you to understand something. When did He, make this, when did he begin to make the Mosaic Covenant? After they had been delivered from bondage. Do you know what that means? They had been saved first. Then He gave them the law. They couldn't have been saved any other way. They couldn't have been delivered by the law. They were delivered by God. They were called forth. They had this irresistible grace, so to speak, and came forth through the water. Then they come to the mountain and God gives the law. Why did God give the law? Not to set them back, but as a way of grace. The Mosaic Covenant is a covenant of grace. You say it can't be a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of works. No, it's not. They had already been redeemed. They had already been brought out. They had already been chosen. God chose to bring them out. He didn't choose to bring Egypt out of the land of Goshen. He chose to bring the Hebrews out of the land of Goshen. It's His choice. It's 100% His choice. And so they come and they are redeemed. They have been saved from bondage and the captivity. And what does He do? He gives them a way to live. A way to relate to Him and a way to relate to each other. And so the law was meant to govern and shape the people of Israel in the promised land. It was not a means of salvation, but it distinguished them. Listen to me. It distinguished them, the law of God to the covenant people, this covenant relationship, it distinguished them from all other people. You know how we know that? Look at Exodus 19 verse 1. It says, "...in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt..." On the very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, then they set out for Rephidim. They came to the wilderness of Sinai, camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak uh, uh, to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. They were going to be known because they lived by the royal law of God. They lived by the moral law. Today in our culture you cannot tell if a person is a Christian or not. Because too many Christians, the majority think to obey Christ is to be a legalist. When it is in fact the very basis of living in freedom. 
You see, the Ten Commandments is the original declaration of freedom. This is how they could be free. They weren't set back by this. They were advanced by this and they were known by this. This is how they were known. And the covenant was conditional and defined by blessings and curses based on obedience and disobedience. Just write out Deuteronomy 28, 29 and you can go see that later. Chapter 28 and 29. So let me give you four things to write down about the Mosaic Covenant. It is foundational, number one, to understanding the cycles of blessing and cursing in the Old Testament. It is foundational to understanding the cycles of blessing and cursing in the Old Testament. Number two, it is foundational to understanding the exiles of Israel and Judah, to understanding them as a people. It is foundational to understand them, the Israelites and Judah. Number three, it is foundational because it was the cause of the disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not follow it. Jesus did. It was the foundation of the disputes. The Mosaic Covenant was the foundation of the disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees. And number four, the Mosaic Covenant is foundational to understanding Paul's pastoral teaching on law in grace. It is absolutely necessary because it's all through the Bible. Every page of the Bible is concerned with what God has said to His people. The next covenant is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the covenant where God promises a descendant of David to reign on a throne over the people of God. It is a continuation of the earlier covenants. It is a continuation of Noahic, of Abrahamic, and Mosaic. It brings further illumination to the light as the Bible progresses. In it, that promise, in this continuation, the promise of a Davidic king as the figure through whom God would secure the promised land, the descendants, and the blessings. It's through this Davidic king to come that would secure the land that was promised to who? Abraham. And the descendants that were promised to who? Abraham. And the blessings that were promised to whom? Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant we begin to see is going to be fulfilled in this Davidic covenant. Speaking of one who's to come. This Davidic king. Number two, this covenant becomes for the basis for the hope of a Messiah. The hope of Mashiach. They didn't know it was Jesus Christ, but at the time they're reading this, at that moment, they're saying there's hope coming. And remember I told you last week what hope is. Hope is an t- anticipation based upon assurance. Hope is anticipation based upon assurance. And then it makes sense 
of the Gospels concerned is so that Jesus was the rightful King of the Jews. So then when Jesus comes and inaugurates the new covenant, He is the one looking back to the Davidic covenant that looks back to the Mosaic covenant that looks back to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Jews understood that. Christians are like going, I still don't even know what covenant is. It's a contract or a treaty or a will that runs all through Scripture. And let me tell you something. Because it does, God has never changed through the Scripture. He's never changed in His administrations of how He has run His biblical plan of, of redemption. He's never changed. He doesn't need this epoch, this one, this one, or this one. He has run the whole thing by His promise to us. His covenant. And so then you come to the new covenant. And did you know the new covenant appears the first time in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 34, and is referred to specifically in Luke 22, 14 through 23. This is the new covenant. This is the language first used by Jeremiah that promises of a rescue and a renewal of the exiled people of God, the Israel of God. It promises that a coming day when God would make a new covenant unlike the one which Israel had broken. They had broken the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. Jeremiah prophesies there will be a new covenant. And this coming day would bring forgiveness of sin, internal renewal of the heart, and intimate knowledge of God. When you think about the fact that all of you in this room right now have a Bible, whether it's paper or video or screen, and, and I have no problem with people using a, a, at all having a, a Bible on your phone or your app or whatever because you can make the text look bigger. But for me, I prefer, a, I prefer a Bible, paper Bible, because looking at the Bible, for me, just for me on an iPhone or an iPad or whatever is like kissing Kelly through a screen door. It's just not the same. You're not going to remember anything else today except when did Pastor kiss Kelly through the screen door. Ladies and gentlemen, on the last night of Jesus's ministry at the Lord's Supper, He takes the cup and He declares His death would be the inauguration of a new covenant. You will not ever again, wherever you are, take the Lord's Supper the same now that you know this. Because the Lord's Supper points all the way back to what happened with Noah. You say, I don't understand because we are we have such a distance between that time and now. But what unlocks it is the covenant. Not theology. Not eschatology. Not soteriology. Not pneumatology. Not Greek or Hebrew or Latin or Aramaic. What unlocks it is that God said, and because He said it, that settles it. Why can we say it settles it? Because God does what He says. And in the Bible, He means what He says. And He says what He means. So you look at Scripture and you say, okay, so He's talking to a covenant people. So these five covenants provide the scriptural a skeletal framework of a, in the context that practically covers every page of the Bible. So get this and then let me exegete the passage. 
the Old Testament covenants establish promises that look forward to fulfillment. Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. Even the overarching, what is known as the covenant of grace that begins in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where it says, You will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise your heel. That is the beginning of the covenant of grace that goes from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the return of Jesus Christ in glory. The covenant of grace. And in that are these smaller covenants. Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. The old covenants are therefore looking of the promises to be fulfilled in the future. But the new covenant, when Jesus broke the bread... Remember on the road to Emmaus, they didn't realize who He was until He broke the bread before them? Now you understand why it meant so much to them. He had revealed to them the Scriptures on the road. But then when He did it, that concept, that Jewish concept, Israel concept of covenant throughout, that's why their hearts burned. Because Jesus was the fulfillment of all that had been said. And much of the New Testament is concerned with this simple subject to say that Jesus Christ fulfills the covenant promises and what life should look like for people living in the new covenant inaugurated at the Lord's Supper. So the first commandment tells us this. It is a covenant relationship And specifically, he uses the word, you shall have no other God before me. Brothers and sisters, he is talking individually to you. Now they taught us in seminary, don't say you. That is the language of a preacher, is to use the word you. That is the language of the preacher, to say you. And this you here... God is saying second person singular. Each one of you shall have no other God before me. He is not speaking of a collective nationality. People say America is Christian. What's our Greek word? Baloney. But but America has a lot of Christians. Amen? The sole allegiance then is this. He is saying to each one of you on the mountain using His word, you shall have sole allegiance to the Lord. And He uses the name Elohim in the preamble of this and that is the word for the personal God. Your personal God. The lost do not have Elohim as their God. The, non-peop- the non-elect or the Israel of God or uh, the Israel, God's church is the Israel of God aware, which is not a replacement, it's the same people. Those who are outside of that would never, God would never refer to them as Elohim, Himself to them because He is the personal God to His covenant people. That word Elohim is for those in covenant relationship. And so it is the foundation upon which everything else rests. The people were to practice 
monotheism and to worship only God as made clear elsewhere in the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch and any worship of any other perceived deity was to be punished with immediate death. It was that important. So first of all, you have a covenant relationship. This is a direct address to God's dearly beloved chosen people. Next, you have a consecrated restriction. You have a consecrated restriction. Now I know that only one or two will appreciate this next point at the first hearing of it. But if you have a King James Version, you will notice that it says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. Why didn't it say, Thou wilt not have another God before me? Why didn't the New American Standard say, You will not have, or you will have no other gods before me? Well, in English, you must understand something. One of the reasons English is so hard is because of the way it is used. And if you speak, try and learn the king's English, you will understand there is a major difference between using the word will and shall. It's like this. I will protect you. That gives, in the first person, an intensity. There is no question that I mean it. I will protect you from error. But if I say, I shall protect you from error, then there's a question. Well, maybe I will or maybe I won't. Depends on how I feel. But what makes English so hard is when you go to the second person, the rule is reversed. So if I say, you will protect me from error, ah, well, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But if I say, you shall protect me from error, there's no question. So the word shall here in the second person means there is no question of intensity. He means it. You shall have no other gods before me. No ifs, ands, or buts. If it was you will have no other gods before me, then you will look like the majority of people that live that way. You say, well, that's really important. It is very important. And when the King James was written in 1611, and before that, the Geneva Bible, they knew, those, they knew to use their English that way. When William Tyndale translated it, he used it correctly, the shall. This, and uh, there's an app called Grammar Monster, uh, this is dying. Today people can't tell the difference between will and shall. Well, you can now. And he says right here, I'm talking about a consecrated, which means to set apart, a consecrated restriction, you shall have. Let me tell you how this is used. In the Hebrew, that's one word, you shall have. It's one word, and it's in what is known as the imperfect. But in the imperfect tense in Hebrew, it does not tell time of action, it tells kind of action. This is important. 
because it refers to the kind of action inside of a person coming out. And it means this. It's like, I was walking, or he was walking, he is walking, he will be walking. It's not talking about the time. It's talking about the action. Walking. And he is saying in this passage here that it is both past, present, and future. You will, you, you are not to have other gods. You are not having other gods. And you will not have other gods before me. And this word, so it means this, the definition of the verb means come to pass, to occur, to happen. And the sense boils down to this, because this is the part you want to know. You will not belong to anything that can be compared to as equal to God. That's what it means. Now, I could really let loose here but I think you understand there is nothing in your life, past, present, or future, that's Greek, Hebrew. We're going to do Hebrew. There shall be no kind of action behind you, in your present, or in front of you that sets anything as equal to God. Now I want you to think about that. That, that's a point of repentance probably for many of us. What do we elevate? Do we elevate our family? I mean, I sat here going, how does the Dallas Cowboys fit into this? I don't even watch the Dallas Cowboys. But how do they fit in this? How does my job fit into this? How does, how does my livelihood depend on this? But don't worry. He explains it in the text. The word God... This word gods, I, I, had a, I had trouble writing it in my computer would always capitalize it. And you cannot capitalize it. No other gods. What does this mean? Supernatural beings worshipped as controlling. Supernatural beings worshipped as controlling. So it means this. Some part of the world, some aspect of your life, or some, or, or some kind of personification of force. I'll give you an example. Politics. Knowledge. I, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's huge. Fear. Putting anything, personifying it, whether it is a deity or not, which it is not, whether it is something hocus-pocus spiritual or not. And I'm going to tell you something else. It's a devil too. I, I, I just lament over folks that are just so overwhelmed at all that the devil's doing. And I'm like, why do you even give him credit? Greater is he that's in us than he's in the world. So you're suffering. Good. Watch God work. It should not even be uttered from our mouths. His name is a profanity because He is profane. And yet, whole churches are built on a belief that you have to ABC 
EFG to make sure the DEVIL doesn't do anything to you. And it's based on F-E-A-R, fear. And in a minute I'm going to run out of spelling words I know how to spell. The reality of it is, is you do not set anything equal to God. In this life, your profession, your hobby, whatever it is, your studies, your spare time, anything in equality to God. Period. Total exclusivity. And then he uses this word before. And this is the word that's the magic word in the whole text that gets everybody riled up in the commentary world. It's used over here in verse 7. And it says, So Moses came and of chapter 19, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words. So that word before the people is the same word used here in verse 3 of chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. So what does it mean? This word before is not a preposition. It's a noun. Now in English it looks like a preposition. But it's a noun. It's a noun. And it means front, head, face, former things, earlier period. It is a tangible thing. Front, head, face, former things, earlier period. And so the sense is this. You shall not have set in the presence or proximity of, of myself, of my face, or in front or before me, any other God. You say, it's just a whole lot easier to just read it in English, isn't it? It is. But you don't get all of it. But I want you to notice this. It's specifically relating to a person. A person. A person. And so, God says to them, don't you set up anything in the form or fashion or in reality of a person before my face. Well, where is His face? Always before yours. To have it on you is to be guilty of violating it. And it is interesting, the very next commandment He gives is you shall make no graven images. God is a spirit needs to be worshipped as one. Not as an idol, not as a totem pole. So let me give you this in context. And then I'll give you the third point. I want you to write down the word prima, P-R-I-M-A, prima. And then I want you to write down the word scriptura, S-C-R-I-P-T-U-R-A. You will be glad you did. The doctrine of prima scriptura is this doctrine, that the Scripture... God's holy word is the first or primary way in which God's revelation comes to us. We can compare and contrast prima scriptura with sola scriptura 
in order to see the theological differences between these two approaches. Prima Scriptura teaches that Scripture is merely first among other sources of divine revelation. Prima Scriptura teaches that Scripture is merely first among other sources of revelation. In contrast, sola, S-O-L-A, sola Scriptura teaches that Scripture is the only source of divine revelation. Prima Scriptura views the Bible as authoritative. It may even be the most authoritative source but it leaves the door open for other authoritative sources of revelation. That's Prima Sit Scriptura. Prima Sit Scriptura holds to the primacy of Scripture, but the Bible becomes one of several rules of faith and practices in Christian life. Do you want to see the classic example of who does this? The Roman Catholic Church. And most other Christians are prima scriptura. Prima scriptura says this to you. I believe I'm a Christian based on the scripture and I'm an American and I have to vote and if I don't vote I'm not an American. So I'm going to go into the voting booth and I'm going to go vote so I can tell whoever's asking that I'm an American and I can vote my Christian values prima scriptura. Sola Scriptura will say to you, this is what God says is an abomination. This is what God says will wreck any people. And you may be presented the opportunity to vote for two of the same kind, just different sets of the coin, and you will have to endure the ostracism of those who say that you're an American if you vote, but if you're going to be Sola Scriptura, there sometimes you just can't because it is to defy God. And then you say, well, that's stupid. We're going to get people in here. No, remember the covenants. God has made covenant with His people. He has kept it for 4,000 years. And it does not hang in the balance of Democrats or Republicans. It hangs in the balance because it's His Word. But when you take God's Word and say, it will be my primary source, as opposed to being my only source, you have found yourself on the slippery slope. Sola Scriptura, write this down. Sola, S-O-L-A, Scriptura. We preach Sola Scriptura. This church is sola scriptura. It's on the front of your, your Bible, your bulletin. We will not change that. Ever. God's way is the best. Because God's word is true. Sola scriptura was the rallying cry of the Reformation. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church made the tradition superior in authority to the Bible. This resulted in many practices that were in fact contradictory to the Bible. And let me just give you some examples that are practiced up the street here and over two other places in our county. For example, praying to the saints and to Mary. The Bible says that's witchcraft and of the devil. 
but praying to the saints and to Mary. The Immaculate Conception, the transubstantiation, whereas at the Lord's table it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It does not. Infant Baptism, in their sense, not in the sense of covenant relationship, but of the washing away of venial sin or moral sin, excuse me. The indulgences, which is what built the Vatican. It's what built the Vatican, the indulgences to get people out of, uh, in, uh, out of purgatory. And then you have the treasury of merit by having the masses. And then you have papal authority, hogwash. Papal authority, the vicar of Christ who speaks ex cathedra from the seat. He speaks as the voice of God. If you believe in prima scriptura, you can believe all of that. But if you believe that this is the source of God's word, then, that, then you're sola scriptura. But what if you're not a Catholic, but you're a crazy maniac Mary? Uh, you're, a, you're, a, you're, a, you're of a more spirit-minded. Well, then you're going to be living your life this way on what God's told you. And all of these mysteries, and see, charismatics have this problem. They think the more profoundly confusing it is, then therefore the realer it must be. And it's okay as long as... You believe it, and I don't question you about it. We can get along. But if I question you, then you just call me a word man, which I have been called many times. So the idea is this is sola scriptura. Now why do we say this? Because God says, I am going to be solo deo. God alone to you. And my word is sola Scriptura, there is no other word. For you to adopt another word is to adopt another God before me. And I said, you shall not. And if you do, then you aren't mine. Because it's a covenant relationship that is based upon a consecrated restriction. Amen? Last of all, you have a committed responsibility. Look what he says. He says right here in verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus verse 20, chapter 20 verse 3 is equivalent to saying in addition to me, in other words, as if meaning from their point of view where there were that of exclusivity rather than hierarchy. You must understand this. Prima sip scriptura means that your relationship to the Bible and to God is a matter of hierarchy. Who's first? Sola scriptura is a matter of exclusivity. Listen, I've been married 27 years. I'd, I had a faux pas the other day at Cracker Barrel. I need to lighten you up for a second to land the plane because you're looking pretty heavy. My kids have worked at Cracker Barrel and are working, and a woman came up to me that works there, and she said, we just love your kids. Are those the only two you have? And I just said, just like that, the only two I know of, I yelled it across the room. And, I, and where I saw that is from the football player across the street. At, well, he now goes out to that church, but he did that one day on uh, that show that Richard Dawson had. What do you got, Family Feud? And he was asked, are these your two sons? And that football player that played for the Steelers said, the only two I know of. I thought, that's funny. So I just quit that being winsome. I found Friday, finally, I went up to her. Her name's Allison. I said, Allison, I've only been with one girl 
and it's my wife, and I only have two children, unless she hadn't. She said, I know you were teasing. I said, but I have been sweating bullets because that sounded awful, and I am a minister of the gospel. It was funny, but it wasn't funny. Not for me. My relationship with my wife is exclusive. And it is bound in a covenant that is based upon the covenants of God. And we can say it's based on the covenants of God because we were married in Christ, which is mentioned the very first time as the very first covenant in the Bible in Genesis 3.15. It's covenant, covenant, covenant. My children are covenant children. They were raised in a home where we didn't say we were Christian. We did Christian. And it's amazing considering our history that my preacher's kids absolutely love church when you consider many others. You must have no other gods over against me. That's the summation of the text. You shall have no other gods over against me. It cannot be your fear. It cannot be your worry. It cannot be your feelings. It cannot be your understanding. It cannot be your opinion. It cannot be uh, arrogance. It cannot be your pride. He is the sovereign. Everything we've done this morning, from the very beginning of the worship, from the call to worship, every sentence, prayer and song, Every reading has pointed to this simple phrase. And it's to worship God the way that He says He will be worshipped. We do not come here and play. We come here worshipping. We don't come to church at the journey. We come to worship. It simply indicates a sense that Yahweh does not have some kind of preeminence in your life. He is all there is. And you say, I don't feel that way. Then the question must be asked, are you one of the yous? Paul says in Romans, not even all of Israel is Israel. They all had the circumcision. But not all Israel was Israel. And at the mountain, everybody at that mountain, the time was going to come, anyone 20 and younger would survive. All the rest would die in the desert while they walked in circles. Are you walking in circles? Or are you the you? That is a very pastoral question. That is the gospel. Are you the you? Why then didn't God just say this? Why didn't He say, I am the only God and don't believe in any others? That's the question I have of this text, personally. Why couldn't you have just said, I am the only God, don't believe in any others, and it is found because of the meaning of the word Elohim. The word God's here is also Elohim and it, is in, it acknowledges that there are many non-human, non-earthly beings. Angels, demons, and so forth. It is mentioned in Psalm 82 in your Bible. 
Jesus talks about it in John chapter 10, 34 and 35, 6. But at the same time, this text tells us something, that Yahweh is, uh, is the only one to be worshipped as the sole divinity. So there it is. Sola divinity. Sola divinitates. Sola Deo Gloria. For God's glory alone. So, you shall have no other gods before me. And all it boils down to is this. Don't have any gods before me. And to think of it this way, before Him is like going to court. I went to court the other day. I dressed up. Tie, coat, shine my shoes. Took a bath, shaved. Put some smell good on. I need to be... I went to court. There is a decorum that you observe in a court. And when the judge came in, here come the judge. You stand up when a judge is in there and you behave differently. Now, there was an attorney in there that didn't know that. But you behave differently when the judge comes in in the court. That is the idea that the Hebrews had here, except they embraced it this way. The court of God, the domain of God, the jurisdiction of God, when they were told this in Mount Sinai, they understood it to mean the whole dominion of God. Whether you're on Mars or Jupiter or the moon, whether you're on earth, in Tamerkistan, Bajurkistan, wherever, wherever you are, He has total dominion. And you are always in the presence of God. And He says, you will not have, you shall not have any other gods before My face. And where you are is before My face. And so the very first thing He says out of this whole commandment, He says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from bondage. You will have no other gods before me. What a freeing thing. If they ever decide in this country to drag us out and make us stand and bow allegiance to this or to God, well, I'll tell you where I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand on the first great commandment. I will have no other God. Do your worst. Because all you can do is usher me into the presence of Him. I've been talking about Him my whole life and I've never seen Him. I'm ready to see Him. I'm ready to sing. It was well with my soul when faith gives way to sight. Someone said to me the other day, well, it was my friend, Sue Gordon called me on, Dr. Gordon, my dear friend, she called me and asked me to do his funeral, which will be uh, quite a, an emotional event for me. Hardest one, and he has not passed yet, but he's coming. And his wife asked him, and I want you to listen to this. His wife asked him, said, Brian, do you think that, that Jesus is going to come get you when you die? And, and, and he said, I sure hope not. And she, she said, why? She said, because I, he said, because I want to take the stairs. I just want to take it all in and see all of it. Well... I know since I'm going to be the man that gives the last word, when I get to heaven, I'm like I am always have done for 40 years, like his other son, I'm arguing with him and say, 
when Jesus appeared to take you home. It was much better than taking the stairs, wasn't it? Just give me Jesus. But you know what? If you're not in that covenant, you'll never see Him. And the way that you'll know in your covenant is not by what you've said. It's by the way you live. You say, that sounds like... Fa-. Uh-uh, it does not. These people were saved before they were given the law to live by. If you live in the freedom that is in Christ and the freedom of not having another God, if He is your primacy, He is not only your primacy, He is the sole thing that occupies you in everything you do, well then, that's what Jesus came to do, was to make you have relationship again with His Father. And I commend Jesus Christ to you as the only way, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to this covenant God except through Him. Jesus has said very plainly in John chapter 6, He does not pray for the world. And He means the whole world. He prays for those whom the Father has given to Him. I pray God that all of us have been given to Him. And our lives are not demonstrated by saying, I know when I believed. I know how I believed. But that our lives are demonstrated as living the same way they did in Sinai. We will live by the very Word of God, which is the bread of life. May God favor His Word in our hearts.